This is a Federal News Network podcast. The Biden administration is setting a higher bar for customer experience across government. But it's the General Services Administration that's laying the foundation for those improvements. GSA, under a recent executive order, is charged with making USA.gov a one-stop shop for individuals seeking federal services. It's also making digital services at other agencies possible through its shared identity authentication services. For an update on all that, Federal News Network's Jory Heckman talked with GSA Administrator Robin Carnahan. It's a very exciting time to be in the middle of all these technology conversations because we know that government's a service delivery business and people expect their service to be delivered digitally nowadays. And so the fact that the president recognizes that customer service has to be a focus and customer experience uh, in the executive order, as well as the president's management agenda is a big deal. Uh, We've been talking about these issues for a long time, but to have the president talk about them is fantastic. GSA's role in this is important for a couple of different reasons. One, of course, uh, we're the place where shared services can be put together and owned by the government. So if you think about what that means, it's things like cloud.gov or regulations.gov or data.gov or login.gov, which are similar services that lots of different agencies need. So why should they all have to reinvent the wheel? Why can't we have one place, a shared service of GSA, be a place where the agencies can go to do that? So that's been a real focus and is going to continue to be one. You know, you know, the U.S. web design standards are things that, that came out of GSA. And those are those are used by like a billion, you know, web users every month. Think about that. That, that is that is a thing that we were able to come up with that has been able to scale across government and have a huge impact uh, on people. So that's one, shared services. The other is we're really focused on thinking about a digital front door. What do we mean by that? We mean that a citizen shouldn't have to try to figure out what agency to go to for some service and understand the structure of government. They ought to be able to go to USA.gov, talk about what their interest or need is, and then be directed to the right place so that there is a front door to go to when you're thinking about your government services. We want to make sure that's accessible to everybody. We've put together USA.gov and Espanol. that's been very popular as well. So, so shared services, a digital front door. And then the third thing we're really thinking a lot about is how do we build up uh, the workforce um, that, that understands uh, the, these digital experiences and giving more opportunities for folks who may know about technology and also be interested in serving the public and having a big impact, a lot easier on ramps to be able to come work in government. Uh, in terms of empowering the federal workforce, getting the right people with the right skills at the right time, what is GSA or the federal government more broadly doing to get these people on board? We talk a lot about this also at the president's management agenda. The first pillar of that is about um, empowering our workforce and retaining and recruiting talent, uh, the workforce to the future. It's a big operational risk to the government, frankly, if we don't do that. And so understanding what we can do to be easier, again, for why I always say for people to raise their hand and to, to do either a tour of duty or join the civil service. There are things that OPM is very focused on. In that realm, when it comes to GSA, we're focused in a couple of areas right now. Obviously, when we're thinking about retaining our workforce, we're thinking about, you know, flexibilities about where people work. I think one of the things coming out of the pandemic is that we've figured out that you can be productive in a lot of different places. It takes a different type of management of your teams and different technology and capabilities, but we can provide
provide terrific service to our customers, but we have to be sure and empower and have that, make sure our teams have the tools to be able to do that. So we're focused on that. We're also focused on helping our agency partners who are thinking beyond just work spaces, right, and buildings, and about what it takes for them to deliver on their missions. And so we're, we're experimenting with things like home office in a box, uh, for example, of, so they can quickly get their teams up to speed if they're going to be remote. Um, also, we're thinking about things like federal hubs where they can go work in secure federal buildings, maybe closer to where they live. So it's not necessarily just one agency's building, but it's like a federal co-working space. So we're talking a lot to our customers about what their needs are, but we know the future is going to look different than the past, and GSA is going to try to be on the front lines of serving our customers so they can better serve the public. What's really striking about all of this is that GSA is, of course, looking at the issue of customer experience, not just internally, but across government, and that they've been tasked as one of three agencies to really oversee the customer experience part of the president's management agenda and working with high impact service providers to improve service across government. So just give me a better sense under the hood of how those actions play out, how those meetings play out and how GSA, again, is a coordinator and a facilitator of government experience writ large. Yeah, that's a great question. So as, as you mentioned, the president's management agenda, the first pillar is about workforce and the second is about delivery. The third is about leveraging federal assets. And so we're involved in all of those. We're primarily one of the leads, as you said, on the delivery pillar. Look, we all know that, as I said, government's a service delivery business. You got to get the policy right. But if you don't deliver, and my shorthand for that, if we can't make the damn websites work, the public doesn't think we're delivering for them. In all of these things, you start small, right? You start with a couple of areas of focus. And so the president's management agenda is focused on these high impact service providers and a few life experiences where We want to dig down deep to figure out how to make sure that moment, maybe somebody's gone through a disaster and is trying to figure out where they might get support from the government, or maybe someone is about to retire or shifting from their military service to the VA. And so there there are various experiences where we know these are really important and we want to make those better, more seamless experiences. So we're going in and having technology teams that focus on user experience and customer experience, look at those journeys, right? To see what that actual interaction is like and how to streamline the process and make it easier. Part of that's about communicating in plain language. Part of it's about how you design uh, the websites. Part of it's about how many steps there are in the process. And so it's really exciting to, to have so many agencies across government being focused right on their customers and how they can deliver better for them. And so we're seeing good results, uh, you know, over at the VA uh, over the last few years, they've really done a lot on this to change the experience of veterans when they go to get their benefits or get their health care. We want to provide that level of good service uh, across the board. Customer experience is not just the only priority that the administration is leading on here that this also intersects pretty strongly with the administration's goals around equity, diversity, accessibility. Just help me better understand from your own perspective on things, how an improving customer experience ultimately moves the needle on those initiatives as well. Well, look, the government has all kinds of customers. One of the ways government's so different than the private sector is we don't pick our customers. 
it's all Americans that we're here to serve. And so the only way you can do that effectively is if you have a cross-section of people in the room and being talked to about how to make sure the services we're providing are accessible to everyone. We know that there are historically underserved communities throughout our country. Many times they are more in need of government services, and we want to make sure that's done in an equitable way. One just small example of that is is the USA.gov in Espanol. Not only do we have a contact center that has you know Spanish speakers there, but the social media accounts and the website itself isn't just a straight-up translation from English. It's like Spanish speakers have helped put this together. And so it's just a much more focused on who those customers are, experience for them. Um, and so we want to bring that kind of mentality and uh, approach to all the things we do. And this is a long game. So we don't, we're not done yet, uh, but what I, I feel like we're moving in the right direction. Going back to the piece of this of GSA as a shared service provider helping other agencies along the way, I think GSA is really working hand in glove with uh, the VA on one of those shared services, login.gov. Can you give me an update on how things are going there? Yeah, they're going great. We're really excited. You know, uh, login had an investment both from the tech modernization fund, but the VA uh, got an investment to, to implement that. Um, and so far, uh, my understanding is more than 60,000 veterans have used that proofing service, uh, that it's going well. We intend to ratchet that up. Um, we, right now, across the government, uh, there are about 40 million users of, of login right now in 27 different agencies, and that's the VA, SSA, uh, SBA, and, and, and others. We want, our goal is by the end of the year, to make that 100 million users, public users of login.gov. So we've got big aspirations there. My personal view is that this this digital identity area is one that is in serious need of attention by the government. Look, a government-issued photo ID has been always the sort of gold standard for identity in our country. That's a government-issued photo ID, not a you know Amazon or Walmart-issued photo ID. It's a government-issued photo ID. And when it comes to digital identity, I think we need to equally have let people have access to a digital identity from the government that is secure, that protects their privacy, and that is accessible to everyone. And so we want to be able to offer this. Uh, it's also a way to save money for taxpayers. I mean, we saw through the pandemic that one of the big problems was that, you know, people might have been qualified to get unemployment benefits because they got laid off from their job or housing or food benefits, but were blocked from getting that because they couldn't prove who they were in the digital systems that were out there being used because nobody could go into offices. We also saw that scammers took huge advantage of this and that, you know, billions of dollars were lost all because of this notion of getting a digital identity. And so we think it's really important. We think it saves a lot of money for taxpayers and it helps government deliver at people's time of need. Obviously a huge foundation for customer experience and digital services across the board. If I could actually take that one step further, I know that the IRS is planning to pivot to login.gov as well. Are you able to shine any light on how things are going specifically on that partnership? We're having lots of conversations uh, with the IRS and we'll keep you posted about the progress. 
But obviously, this is one of the primary interactions people have with government every year. And we ought to make that seamless and we ought to do it in a way that protects their privacy and ensures security and make sure it's accessible to everybody. And so those are kind of the guardrails and principles that we're going to be focused on. A lot of irons in a lot of fires here, it seems. And I think just one other specific project that we saw spelled out specifically in the executive order is a partnership between GSA, the U.S. Digital Service, and the Postal Service. Quite a team there, specifically around uh, change of address and making sure that people are able to get the services wherever they live and if they're on the move. Can you give me a sense of how things are going there and what the value proposition of this project really is? Yeah, it's a really exciting idea, you know, that we have a lot of this information already. And it is kind of aggravating when you're when you update information in one part of the government that you've got to like update it in every other part, too. I remember years ago when I, I moved and I updated my driver's license and they asked me at that time, are you registered to vote? And I said, yes. And I thought that meant they were going to update my voter registration address. Well, it didn't happen because I had to go through a whole different system for that. So there is all kinds of logic for people that if they could update at one time for government and have that uh, apply across government, that would be super convenient. I will tell you that we uh, have teams now that are involved in user research to understand kind of what the real need is, what, what the problem set is, and where we can get the biggest bang for the buck and in the use of these data sets. This is, this is a thing that, again, has to be done in a way that is protects security and protects people's privacy. That is a very big deal, and we take it seriously in everything that we do. Okay, yeah, and certainly there are a lot of efforts underway here, but in terms of metrics, in terms of benchmarks, to know that the needle is moving in the right way, what is GSA's compass in all of this? We have a mantra around here that we measure things, that we measure what matters, and so we're very focused on figuring out what what the outcomes are that we, we want to achieve and then measure against that and put metrics together. We'll say the sort of tools themselves that we offer, we use a GSA and offer to our partners are very typical kind of analytics that you can imagine Google analytics that lets you know who's using sites, how they're accessing sites, how long they're on pages, how many steps it takes them to get through something. If there's drop off in completion rates, all of those things give you a good sort of data points about where you could improve the process for people. And so uh, we're allowing agencies and certainly within GSA looking at those things all the time. I'm really struck by how customer experience is taking on its own kind of discipline in government that, yes, tech is one piece of the puzzle here, but it's more than just any one CIO or, you know, outside of the CIO shop to fix this. You know, how do you see technology being, of course, a facilitator for customer experience, but this being bigger than just tech itself? Yeah, look, to me, I'm not a technologist. What I am is somebody who wants government to deliver on its promise to folks and to do that most cost effectively. The tools that which we've done that over the years have changed. And the tools that we need to make work for people today include technology. And so that is what this is about for me. It's not about the tech. It's about how we deliver for people, how we make sure that they know their government is there when they need it, and that democracy writ large is able to deliver in the 21st century. And uh, so I, I tell the team all the time, this isn't about the websites. This is about delivering for the public and building trust. Their government is doing what they've been hired to do. 
And so that's what we focus on every day here at GSA. That's GSA Administrator Robin Cartahan talking with Federal News Network's Jory Heckman. You can find their entire extended conversation at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hello, I'm WIPA CEO Shane Canfield, and thank you for joining us on another episode of Lessons in Leadership. I'm honored to be joined by Angie Bailey, founder and CEO of Ananda Life. Angie has a remarkable career in public service, beginning as a GS2 clerk typist with the Social Security Administration. And over the next 40 years, Angie steadily worked her way up through the government, ultimately becoming the Chief Human Capital Officer at the Department of Homeland Security. She's been recognized with presidential rank awards by two administrations for leadership, innovation, dedication, and commitment to the country. Angie, thank you for joining us. Thank you, Shane. What a pleasure to be here. Angie, you've made quite a name for yourself as a leader in the federal workforce. Who was the first person you remember looking up to as a leader? And what about them inspired you? You I often think about this because, you know, sometimes we think of the people that we look up to the most as being somebody that throughout our career has, you know, been at the highest levels and all. But, you know, I've got to go back to honestly, whenever I was 10 years old, and uh, I remember I really wanted to play Little League Baseball on a boys team. I was the only girl. And interestingly, it was the women who would keep saying to me that, no, I couldn't play. And then one day, whenever I was there to sign up yet again, uh, there was this guy, his name was Delbert Beiser. And uh, I remember he had like red hair and he had a wad of tobacco in his mouth and greasy overhauls and everything. And he said, you know, I'll take her, I'll take her on my team. And, you know, just looking back on that, there's so many leadership lessons and things that I just really admire about him. And actually, I thought about throughout my entire career, he took a chance on somebody he didn't know. He um, put aside whatever conscious or unconscious biases that he might have had about having a girl on a team. He treated me the same, uh, whether you know, if I wasn't performing, I got benched just like the boys. I got no special treatment. And, and, and he was just really honest with me and he just included me in everything. And so looking back on it, you know, really it was Delbert Beiser, our local mechanic in our little small village. That was, I think my inspiration for going on to, I hope become the leader, um, you know, that, that I wanted to be. I'd say half of the guests on this podcast have had similar stories where they reach back to either childhood or young adulthood. And I, and I think as leaders, it's really incumbent upon us to keep that in mind, that, that what we say and do, at, especially in the younger ages, really can have a lifelong impact. How would you describe your leadership style and, and how has that developed over time? I would say that the one word that describes my leadership style is that I care. Um, I guess that's more than one word, but I care. Uh, I, I've always cared about the mission. I've always cared about the people. I've always cared, you know, about making sure that that they had what they needed or that they were developing the way, uh, you know, that they aspired to develop. And I tried to take this approach of not treating people the way I wanted to be treated, but instead treat people the way they wanted they want to be treated. And I think that that really kind of developed over my career. You know, I started out just like most leaders do where it's very results driven. It's all about the bottom line. You need to make sure that you get everything accomplished because, you know, that's what everybody's looking for, the goals, the metrics, et cetera. But I think as you mature and you go along, you start to, to your point, you draw back on those early childhood days or early adult, young, 
you know, whenever you're a young adult and you say, you know, I think that there's a little bit more to this than just the bottom line. And so over time, I really began to, I, I think, see a much bigger picture and the entire ecosystem, if you will, and how the people themselves fit into all of this. And that ultimately, at the end of the day, it was all about the people. And so, I, you know, I think my, my maturity allowed me to then shift and focus more on the people than, than so much on the results and bottom line. You've been recognized with two presidential rank awards two different administrations. You founded your own company. Tell us a little bit more about your background from the beginning and and how did that lead you to where you are today? Well, you know, it's kind of interesting, like you said, that I started out as a GS2, a social security administration. I mean, what I really wanted to be was a criminal prosecuting attorney. That's, that was absolutely my dream. I sometimes joke and say what I really wanted to be was a mafia don, but that wasn't going to work out. So, you know, had to be a criminal prosecuting attorney, but, you know, I had to get a job to pay for college. I, you know, it wasn't in the cards that I was going to be able to go to college without a job. So I applied at the social Security Administration, or I'm sorry, at the unemployment office, and lo and behold, I got a job at Social Security. I didn't even know it was federal, to be honest. Uh, from there, I went to the Department of Defense, and I found this, this career field called labor and employee relations. And honestly, it was as close as I was going to get to being a criminal prosecuting attorney. I didn't go on to be a, a criminal prosecuting attorney, but I went on courtesy of the Department of Defense to get both my bachelor's and my master's in leadership, because the whole study of leadership, I just find incredibly fascinating. Um, You know, from historical to current, current times, I just, it's just something that's just really fascinated me. And so I just, I would say I'm a lifelong learner of leadership. And then I would say some of the other things that got me maybe where I am today is I never really said no to anything. If people asked me to take on a new challenge, even if I wasn't sure I was going to be successful at it, I would say, you know what, not sure this is going to work out, but more than happy to give it a try. And it always worked out. But I think giving things a try and just not saying no to opportunities is what really led from one position to the next. I feel like I was always rewarded for just stepping in or stepping up and taking on the challenges that sometimes no one else wanted to do. Angie, thanks so much for joining us today. Oh, thank you, Shane. It's such a pleasure. I I really appreciate you giving me this opportunity. Thank you. This has been the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm CEO of WEPA, Shane Canfield. Looking forward to talking to you next time. Pop quiz. What can you buy for $3.99? Not a latte, but for less than the cost of a cup of coffee, you can get all your favorite music ad-free. While other streaming services jack up their prices, Live One's membership is only $3.99 per month, and you can lock in that price for a full year. Join now to get the best deal in music with zero ads, unlimited skips, and maximum audio quality. Get the music you love at a price that fits into your budget with Live One Plus. Check out liveone.com slash bestmusic for details. This episode is brought to you by Zelle. Whenever you're sending money through an app or online, it's important to do it safely. Here are a few helpful tips. First, always make sure you know and trust the person you are sending money to. Second, confirm you have entered their contact details correctly. And finally, if you don't trust the person or your recipient is rushing you to send money right away, think twice before sending money through an app or online.